We've seen so many multinationals that don't have this under control. They don't know what they own. They don't have quality information at a local level. And if you think of any major fraud, failings of multinationals, that's always happened at subsidiary level. This is Governance Matters, a podcast for corporate secretaries. I'm Taylor Hughes. And I'm Jeff Cassette. High-profile frauds and other problems that come up at the entity level can have a major or even fatal impact on the parent company. At Parmalat, they've been cooking the books to a fraud of epic proportions. At the same time, in wake of the financial crisis, the press is on around the world, from authorities and regular people, for better transparency throughout the entire organization. And so, as companies grow and evolve across multiple jurisdictions, entity governance has transformed into a complex, collaborative, and critical corporate secretarial role. On today's program, why entity management matters. First up, Computer Share CEO of Governance Services, Jared Simpson. When it comes to wrangling one's entities, he says there's really only one solution to handling the chaos. We'll find out what that is. And in our second half, we'll meet Connor Curatech. As Chief Corporate Counsel and Assistant Corporate Secretary at Martian McLennan Companies, Connor orchestrates a governance structure with some 900 legal entities scattered across 130 countries. His sharp focus on international governance played a pivotal role in handling a major Australian governance investigation and Martian McLennan's 4.8 billion euro purchase of UK insurer Jardine Lloyd Thompson. Stick around because he's got some great chaos busting secrets as well. That's right. And we'll also do a really deep dive on the JLT deal. Now that's coming up. But now, Jared Simpson on taming entity complexity. Why has entity management even even entered the conversation here? I, I know in terms well, of the responsibilities it, for it, corporate it secretaries. Question. It seems like a stupid question, but it really is the ultimate question of really, of really what's going on. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a long answer, but let, let me try to put it as succinctly as possible. For, for years, multinationals have been concentrating about their, their boards, i.e. their listed boards, the main board, HQ board, whatever you want to call it, you know, the main board of directors and all the governance that goes around with that, uh, whether that's in Sarbanes-Oxley, whether that's audit committee set up, independence of directors, directors training, it's all been focused on the boards. And what's basically happened over the last three or four years, this whole entity focus has been driven by the global tax transparency conversation, which was sort of created by the OECD uh, due to some tax issues. And you, you, could, you, know, you could pin that back to the technology companies, but it's not really the technology companies. This has been going on for years. And the public debate that then started on whether people were paying their fair taxation in, in jurisdictions. Uh, and that escalated and morphed into a conversation about reporting, uh, which basically came down to the OEC, produ- OECD sorry, producing some new legislation on, on BEPS reporting, uh, which basically, you know, in, it, in its simplest form, 
what that does is that says organizations now must report all their legal entities, whereas previously uh, all regulators, when I say all regulators, huge generalization, but most regulators were looking at where the economic interest sat in the group structure. And so you know, most multinationals, if you had a thousand entities, you probably reported on about 600 of them because that's where your P&L sat. Whereas 400 of them, you'd say they were dormant, you know, nothing was happening with them off balance sheet, whatever description you gave them. And you use the materiality uh, audit phrase, accounting phrase, not to have to report those legal entities' information. Uh, and that made, that made it a lot simpler for groups because basically, when I say simpler, they didn't have less reporting. But it also meant that they could... And these, I guess, would be the conversation from the regulators and the revenue services around the world, pull the wool over people's eyes and the regulators of, of what was happening with flows and group structures. And so the regulators have said, no, we need to see full transparency of everyone's group structures. That means everything reported. And that starts with a master file, what's called the master file on your vets reporting. And that must be every legal entity. Uh, no materiality. And that's really changed centralized reporting. So whereas beforehand reporting in most multinationals was siloed, i.e. tax did their own reporting, tax purposes, accounting for consolidation of accounts, etc., etc., what started with this BEPS is that goes across all the disciplines, across all the functions within an organization. So you start with a master file and then you build up with further information of that group structure. So you end up with giving the revenue services around the world full transparency and group structure. So what's happened is back in organizations, whereas, you know, tax has been saying this is our group structure, we need to file that with the tax authorities and finance is saying here's our group structure, this is a consolidated set of accounts. Now they're saying, well, everything needs to be filed in the group structure, that sits with company secretaries, legal groups. So they're saying, where's our master file of legal entities? Where our, where's our version of the truth of what our group structure is? Not what the financial structure is, not what the tax structure is, but the legal structure, no materiality. So that's really refocused organizations to start to say subsidiary management, subsidiary governance is becoming important. You know, we only need to look at the press of what's happened with the organization saying, why have they got, you know, companies set up in Luxembourg with zero employees and yet billions of dollars goes through that. So it, it's really honing down to what's happening at subsidiary level. Uh, and that's changing the focus for company secretaries. And, and I think, this isn't one of the causes, but what's always been interesting for me is, you know, we've seen so many multinationals that don't have this under control. They don't know what they own. They don't have quality information at a local level. And if you think of any major uh, fraud, failings of multinationals, that's always happened at subsidiary level. The, the, the misdemeanors were in subsidiaries that nobody was really looking after. Uh, no one was looking after the compliance. So I think this has come together as a, as a, there's no, no one thing that's driven it, but the best regulations, the tax transparency debate with the general public has really got organizations focused saying we can't just decentralize our group structure and, and hope it's happening at a local level. We've got to be able to prove to regulators that we're compliant and we've got control over this and also to our own internal audit and directors. So that's long answer, wow. but that's, that's basically what's been going on over the last two or three years. So I don't see it stopping. And, and that all falls on the shoulders of the corporate secretary uh, function. Well, that's a really good 
again, question because, you know, this is a volume game. Uh, for some organizations that have, say, four or 500 entities, yes. But some of the organizations like the banks that go into thousands and thousands of entities, they're struggling with this because historically company secretaries have looked after, say, the board or the regulated entities and looking around how to govern those. And now all of a sudden they're saying, well, how do we deal with, you know, pulling together information for 16,000 legal entities globally? So they're struggling a bit. Where does it sit? Uh, and where does the resource sit internally to be able to do that? Uh, and but so the other organisations with the six, you know, 600 entities down to 100. This is this is new. This is a real focus. And so there's a real problem of saying, well, how do we get our arms around this? Have we got enough resource? Have we got enough knowledge? Have we got a network? Have we got a methodology? You know, have we got the technology and the right people to do this? And you know, that's what we're doing in our organisation is bringing technology, people, process together in a network that we can work with clients to say there's a way through this and there's a way through this which is more which is really, really relevant that will enhance your governance, give you that reporting and that one version of the truth and we think save costs because this has been decentralised for so many years that at a local level, Fees are being charged by local service providers. There's no control over that globally. There's no economics of, economies of scale or pricing. So we're looking at anywhere between 15 and 20% savings on helping organizations manage this around the world and enhancing governance. So it can be a win-win and you know, finding a, a pathway, a solution through this ever-increasing complexity of compliance and reporting. When you're talking about volume, when you're talking about process, you know, then then how can the technology not be involved? And, and basically what's happened over the last 10 to 25 years in this industry, there's been some decent technology out there, but the technology hasn't been coupled with the processes, the methodology and the people to make it work. And, you know, the, the, in some respect, the software has been developed without having the company secretaries uh, around it to make sure that it's doing the right thing. So organizations mm. do have the technology, but they really haven't worked out the methodology and the processes of how to keep that up to date with information, and more importantly, how to, how to keep on driving value from the technology. And you know, we're finding our clients at the moment, you know, a, a good example is they might only be using 15 to 20% of the capabilities of the system. Now, that, that's a failing from them, but it's also a failing from us as an organization to be able to help them to say, look, this is how you can use this. And more importantly, it's not a nice to have. It doesn't make you know, pretty pictures. It will increase your governance, reduce risk in your organization, greater visibility, and save you money. So that's something we're really concentrating on with our clients at the moment is to say, how do we, how do we release that value of that technology but, you know, to be fair, and a lot of our clients are still in the stage of let's just get quality information into that system, i.e., you know, whatever the legal situation is in the country, is that correct? Is the regulatory authority got the information in that country correct? And then is that on the database correct? So a triangulated three-way audit of the entity is what we would do. And once you've got that quality information, the rest of the organization will be relaxed. It will start to use it. It will start to really see value in it. But at that point, that's not enough for us with our clients. Then we want to push forward and say, right, how do we do some analytics on this? How do we keep taking on a path that will reduce cost and at the same time 
which is a difficult equation, but we've done it with numerous flyers, enhance your governance while reducing that cost. Because, you know, unfortunately, so many organisations are in this. They're asked to do more and more within the corporate secretarial department, freezing on, on headcount, hmm. freezing on, you know, its budgets. Uh, so it's really difficult for them. So that's the solution we've sort of been working towards to help them get through this, navigate this path. Huh. I, it, does that result in, in a, a transformative corporate secretary coming back to you and saying, my God, my job is practically fun now. It's <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I, we've had a lot of clients when we talk to clients what we're capable of doing here. They say, I don't think you'll be able to do it because they've lived through the nightmare of not being able to do it. <laughs> and we say we can. The methodologies are there. The control mechanisms are there. And when we've actually created this environment, and it's, it's a foundation, you know, a foundation of good, solid information. What it does, when you say it makes their job even more fun, it releases them from this day-to-day firefighting of trying to catch up with bad information and respond to people's requests, thinking, is this quality? Have we just told them the right information? Have we not? It takes them away from that firefighting and drudgery on a day-to-day basis, and it means that they can you know, add further value to the organization by looking at other areas they can assist the board in governance or the organization in governance. And this, you know, this compliance burden has been lifted from them. So, hmm. yes, I think, you know, it, whether they say their job is good fun after that might be pushing it too far. <laughs> but I think it, it, does, it does release them from this day-to-day firefighting and gets them to be able to really look at the value they might be able to have in the organization. You know, Jared, um, I know we only have a few more minutes, but I'm, I'm speaking with Connor Kuratek at uh, HPE, and we're going to be talking about um, uh, sort of a, a case study that he went through, that he went through. It, it strikes me that the corporate secretaries, the, the kind of person is changing a little bit. You have to, I, maybe I have a, um, um, a stereotypical view, but... Uh, I'm getting the impression you have to be, not only do you have to be hep technologically, but you kind of have to be more of a collaborator and kind of like, a, for lack of a better word, a people person, maybe. I don't know. I, can, can you speak, Jared, to sort of the kind of person or the skills uh, needed now to sort of succeed in the business? Yeah. Well, look, I think there's been a massive change uh, in, in, you know, in, in 20 years of seeing, you know, what we would call the you know, years ago, the pipe and slipper company secretary who would sit there and be very close to the board, very intimate with the board, have very good knowledge of the organization, but that's all they were focused on. Uh, And they were, you know, without being too rude, one-dimensional. Did their job very well, but that was it. And I think now we're seeing a new breed of company secretary coming through that are having to take on so much more responsibility as the environment's changing. Uh, the regulatory environment, as the directors are changing. You know, the directors have gone under a lot of pressure over the last 10 years with their responsibilities, their liabilities. So they've internalized that and been asking, well, these are my responsibilities now. Who's looking after me in the organization? And that's obviously the company secretary. So, you know, the company secretary's had to, had to be more collaborative, had to become more of a team player. We saw so many company secretaries years ago that would, I'd say, were brilliant technically, but they were siloed individuals that really couldn't work with other people. And, and that just doesn't work anymore because, you know, these guys are having to work across, you know, boards. 
boards that are decentralized, boards that may you know be meeting a lot more techno- on technology than actually physically, especially at the moment. Uh, they're having to work with internal across, you know, whether it's audit functions, internal audit functions, whether it's finance functions, whether it's treasury functions. So they're having to be more collaborative, uh, which is really, it's exciting because it's really changed the quality of people in the organizations that are also now looking at themselves as value enhancers as well, which I think is one of the other biggest changes. Collaboration being the first one and the ability to work in teams but they view themselves now not as a cost center, but they're viewing themselves, and a lot of them have been forced to do that by, by the organizations and the environment, but say, well, what can I add to this organization? I, you know, there's no point just sitting me doing the same old job every day. How do I actually work with the board, with other functions, to really change the value that the corporate secretary is adding to the organization? So, you know, it's a bit like seeing your child growing up, you know, you, you don't see it because you're in the industry all the time. But if I look back, there's been some huge leaps between now the quality of the people that we're working with that will be having, you know, conversations now that is, you know, this, yes, Jared, this is where the technology is at the moment. Yes, I can see you're making some advances. But what, what about the next five years? How will it help me in five years? How will it help our organization in five years? That, that's a pleasure to have those conversations because you know, if I'm realistic, 10 to 15 years ago, that was very, very rare to have those conversations. So it, it bodes well. There's some really, you know, fantastic quality people coming into, into the industry, which, which is, is needed. And, you know, but it's, it's been great to work with some of those people. You're listening to Governance Matters, a corporate secretary magazine podcast. This episode is made possible by Computer Share Georgeson. Ever since he was a kid, Connor Curatech wanted to be, quote, an international lawyer. Better be careful what you dream for. Because now, if anybody is, Connor Curatech really is. Since joining Martian McLennan in 2016, he's traveled the globe helping directors, managers, and some 400 international legal and compliance professionals with all sorts of governance issues. But... When he was handed key roles on two of the most important issues facing MMC, namely an Australian industry-wide governance probe and a high-speed acquisition that merged thousands of legal entities, Curatech had to bring more than just governance savvy to the table. At the 2019 Corporate Governance Awards, they called it emotional intelligence. I wanted to find out more about this whole emotional intelligence thing. Computer Share Simpson had made some mention of it. Might be some sort of professional trend. So here's Connor Curatech on what it's like being an international lawyer and why entity governance is essential to good business. Let's start with the uh, Australian Royal Commission inquiries. It's March 2018. And you get a call. Maybe you can uh, walk us through just what you can of, of, of that event. I'm going to speak in generalities to that as opposed to getting into specifics. But I definitely, I'll, 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 I'll speak to it at a high level. Uh, as Assistant Corporate Secretary at MNC, I began my career 
essentially helping out our MMC public company board in the United States in the center. But as I developed and continued throughout my career with our 900 legal entities, it became clear that the learnings that we have from the center and best corporate governance practices in the United States could be applied around the world. And it ended up that we had a situation in Australia where the expertise of what is best practices in the United States was essential um, in order to evaluate the governance structure of our Australian subsidiaries and our regulated entities there. So at, at a moment's notice, I was asked to, to fly down to Australia, which first started off for what was supposed to be one week to help evaluate our board structure, various conflicts of interest, um, to evaluate their alignment with best practices. And it ended up that as time went on, the Australian Royal Commission got more and more requests in terms of the structure, but also our business practices in general. So I stayed on for what ended up being five weeks in Australia to help assist the team there to respond to these various inquiries from the Royal Commission. Um, and, and sorry, I'm going to stop here. Um, so... Okay. Well, maybe maybe we can uh, before we leave it. Then, uh, I mean, what's the takeaway from that? Then, without getting into operational details. Yes. So, when you have a complex, large organization among various geographies, it's essential to continually review each of your geographies and your governance structures and your subsidiaries for best practices. You can't assume that each of the jurisdictions are just complying with local best practices and that that conforms to the overall structure and the culture that you want to have at the group level. So it's just, what we do is we very periodically go to do deep dives of each jurisdiction to review what their processes and procedures are, to review conflicts of interest, to review board structures, and to review board and director memberships to make sure that we have visibility at the group level into what they're doing so we can make sure that not only are they complying with local best practices, that they conform to what our philosophy is for corporate governance at the group level. They gave you a standing ovation, right? <laughs> Before you left? <laughs> what was that like? Um, so I think oftentimes people consider the governance role and the secretarial role within a company to be one of isolation and that you work independently and the decisions you make really don't affect the entire company or the business and the executives as a whole. But what I learned from being Australia after those five weeks of working hand in hand with both the finance department, the legal teams, the compliance team, was that good governance is essential to good business. And that, that's the main takeaway. And if you can give the business and the, the local teams the, the power and the understanding that why good governance is essential to make an efficient and well-run business, how conflicts of interest could potentially affect the bottom line of the company, it, it really goes a long way into making the, the company live and breathe what you believe good governance is. And so at the end, after working hand-in-hand -hand, late nights, working till 3 o'clock in the morning for, for weeks straight, 
when I left, um, I, I was given a standing ovation from everyone just because I became such an integral part of not only just the, the, the legal team and the governance team, but I became a part of the entire company in Australia as a whole. And it really just shows how the corporate secretary role is so integrated and touches upon so many different parts of the business and that we all really need to work together hand in hand in order to, to get the best result, not just from a good governance perspective, but really one that helps the bottom line of the company and shareholders generally. Just weeks after Curatex returned from Australia in the fall of 2018, MMC announced its bid to buy the world's sixth largest insurance company, Jardine Lloyd Thompson. It would be MMC's biggest acquisition ever, and it presented a host of risks. Curatex was part of a four-person in-house legal team on the transaction, but he also worked hand-in-glove with finance on the deal's unique financing. So in 2018, when we announced that we were going to be acquiring Jardine Lloyd Thompson, which is a UK public company, that was at the time our largest uh, transaction in our company's history. We had 600 legal entities. They had around 400 legal entities. We were a US public company. They were a UK public company with dozens of regulated entities, dozens of different regulators than we had. And it was an extremely large challenge from a acquisition and integration perspective in order to, um, in order to bring our two organizations together. It wasn't just simple enough that we took their structure and stuck it somewhere within ours and allowed them to operate as they continued to have been. It was very, culture is extremely important to us. Good governance is extremely important to us. And as I mentioned before, we take great pride in having a consistent approach and certain standard bottom lines that are consistent with every entity, no matter what jurisdiction you are in and no matter if you're a acquiree or part of our legacy company. So, so during our acquisition and integration period, I had to fly to London at least nine times during that period to sit with the team in the UK to have explain to them our governance structure, the differences between US best practices, UK best practices. And it was actually really instrumental in taking the best of both. Mm-hmm. Um, we did that from an integration perspective, but we also learned a lot from them in terms of UK practices that they were implementing on conflicts of interest, on approval procedures, and in various other governance um, aspects that we were able to combine from their thinking in order to make a best of both, best approach for governance. And once we completed the acquisition in April of 2019, we began a very laborious task of trying to integrate those 400 legal entities that just were newly acquired to us into our group structure. We couldn't continue from a governance structure, but also from a finance structure and a tax efficient structure in order to have those entities sitting there operating independently. We had to merge our directors. We had to merge our policies. We had to merge all of our processes and procedures in order to to make a company that operated as one seamlessly. So over the course of a year, I would sit with our folks in London, our directors in London, really trying to figure out and coordinate and quarterback a system of how we could integrate 
their organization was, was in ours. We ended up having 50 different integration plans around the world for where we had overlapping entities. Um, and it, it's a process that's still ongoing, and it takes a lot of time. And as I mentioned before, putting in the effort up front, having a plan, having a basic set of common principles saying that XYZ is non-negotiable in terms of how these companies should be run in terms of conflicts of interest or saying that on certain regulated entities, we had to have a certain amount of independent directors. We made a common set of principles that we pushed out to our organization during the integration process so that every country around the world that we were integrating into our own structure knew what the baseline was. And we worked from that and really went from a country-by-country basis because every country has a different culture, has a different set of standards, and you won't get where you want to get unless you sit down with them and do the hard work to understand so they understand where we're coming from and you have that common baseline of understanding from each country. You're sort of consolidating things. Did you ever get any pushback from from either you know sort of local directors or even even the the um, uh, the local regulators um, on your scheme? I guess people were used to working the way they worked, and then now you're saying no. <laughs> here's a better way. Um, let's do it this way. How do you convince people? That- yeah, no, and 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 that goes to the the bottom line baseline set of principles, again, that we established early on. Um, of course, there is going to be pushback. In certain jurisdictions, the UK, for example, that is more highly regulated in our line of business than the United States, um, it, it took a little bit of a cultural shift and a push in order to understand what we were, in order for them to understand what we were trying to accomplish. Um, but um, eventually, having that strong center um, again, I can't emphasize that enough. The, 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 decon- the deconsolidated nature of corporate governance, I don't believe, works in a large multinational corporation. You have to have that common set of principles. And so, like I said, we pushed out a common set of principles in the beginning. We had it approved at the center, and it was that work, and that's the hard work we do. That's why I was in London nine times over the course of the year. It's not just a document you send in an email attachment and say, please go ahead and implement. Um, There is extreme pushback, and that's why you literally have to hold their hands and sit with them to, to make sure that these processes happen. Besides fast-paced integration challenges, the JLT deal also featured a novel Brexit hedge financing involving a forward exchange hedge that would disappear at no cost to MMC if the deal went sour. As Curatech explains, risk anticipation and mitigation throughout the entire process was critical for the deal's ultimate success. At MC, as a U.S. company, um, we have our financials denominated in U.S. dollars. JLT was a U.K. company, and the purchase price for the company was, was in pounds. And we were very sensitive at the time, given the Brexit uncertainties regarding foreign um, currency interest rate translation issues. Um, so we and legal um, worked with finance to come up with a very, um, at the time, which was a, a novel hedging structure that was extremely complicated in order to, to help protect us from some of the volatility regarding Brexit. 
And again, that's one of those things that the corporate secretary role, you might not think that's a traditional role, mm. but it required, it was a novel structure, right? It required to be explained to the board. It wasn't just something that can get rubber stamped when you come up with these novel, uh, innovative structures that, that can help advance the business and put you in another league um, in terms of your peers. So, so it was very instrumental for us in legal to be involved with the finance team in order to make sure not only did we get the right approvals, but when it came to explaining to the board the risk they were taking, that we did a deep dive analysis with our finance team on each of the risks, how we were mitigating it, and what the structure and the disclosures would look like moving forward. Um, again, going back to my initial point of making sure we do the work up front, you never want surprises when you come to this stuff in terms of the corporate governance. If you lay out the groundwork in the beginning and brief the board appropriately at the beginning, it can help make the process smoother as you go forward. So when it came to that innovative hedge, we did a lot of work working with finance right up front to make sure that we were appropriately disclosing to the board in appropriate detail what it involved. And then when it came to our public disclosures, as this was innovative, we did disclose it in detail um, directly in our public report so investors could see what we were doing and to align our public disclosures with what we were telling the board. Hmm. You, you consistently um, either had backup plans or you did sort of plan in advance. Even uh, even before, I mean, you knew that there there might be an antitrust issue. Uh, you, if they did happen, boom, you were all set to address them. Exactly, MNC is in the business of risk um, risk mitigation. So, so <laughs> for that to be our culture and that to be our business, we take that very seriously from our legal compliance and governance functions as well. You can't be in the business of risk management and not have strong processes and procedures. Um, at the at the governance level, so so exactly to that point, not only did when we had these innovative structures, we had contingencies and backup plans along every step in the way. Our CEO and our management was telling us to get the deal accomplished at a certain time, and we would do anything we could in order to make that timeline. And so we had backup plan upon backup plan, whether it was for for some of these innovative transaction structures, for regulatory approvals. Um, we, we, we had everything pre-drafted, and so we were able to execute extremely quickly, and we met the exact deadline from what our CEO had asked us to do a year before. Right, and one of the backup plans was, uh, was the sale of um, JLT's uh, airplane business. Somebody clearly said this could be a problem in terms of antitrust. Uh, sure enough, I, I guess it was, uh, but you, were, you had anticipated that. Yeah, exactly. So given we had such a tight timeline in order to close the transaction, and given that the antitrust approvals are so essential and could potentially be the reason that the transaction got holed up from its completion date, we in legal and in our corporate governance uh, functions really wanted to make sure that legal was not the bottleneck for accomplishing and completing the transaction on time. Mm. So for every step along the way and for every jurisdiction where antitrust approval was required, we would have backup plans and draft documents in advance to make sure that if a contingency arose, we were ready to revise, to pivot, to be able to, to submit new documentation at a moment's notice in order to continue to make those deadlines. 
So as an example, with the sale of the JLT aerospace business, um, I was asked to fly to London um, the day after we were told that there were potentially um, issues with, with that business. And I worked with the team there in order to have documentation prepared literally within a week um, for us to, to be able to submit that to the regulators in order to continue to meet the deadlines um, that, that we were trying so hard to make. And and you did, and uh, bang on schedule, the transaction closed on April 1st. Yes, exactly. We, 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 love, <laughs> we, we love that line. And in our public disclosures, we, we always want to, we, we said the spring of 2019, but we are very sensitive to the fact that we're a global company, that spring is different in different hemispheres. So um, that, we, that, that was always a internal joke that it was, it was spring in the northern hemisphere, but to our Australian and... Uh, South American and other uh, other colleagues around the world that, that it wasn't exactly spring of 2019 there, but it was spring of 2019 <laughs> at our New York headquarters. One way or another, it was uh, it was April Fool's Day. <laughs> yes, exactly. We 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 also made uh, the, the timing was so tight that we, that was not lost on us that it was April Fool's Day, but. But luckily, um, it, it, it all worked out according to schedule, and I actually had the opportunity to be in the high court of um, in the UK uh, the day the transaction was approved, along with our outside counsel. And that was one of, one of the proudest moments uh, I've had was to, to to sit there and see the judge, who, despite my uh, my best wishes, did not have one of the the, the good English wigs on, but it was a very much of a normal court. But I was able to, to, to sit in the room in the court when the transaction was approved, which is just a testament as well to, to the importance of the, the legal and corporate secretarial functions when it comes to these types of transactions. Not, not, not to quote Hamilton, but we, we literally were in the room where it happened. Um, and it was not just the, the finance and the M&A folk leading everything. We were really integral part of the team. Maybe maybe it's not that much of a segue, but maybe we can talk about doing all that uh, under COVID. Um, everyone's working at home from home, I presume. Do you have any thoughts on, on, on entity management uh, under COVID? Uh, no, definitely. And my, my response to this would have been very different three years ago. Um, our company has been on a extremely long journey in order to modernize our legal entity management system. Um, previously, it was dispersed, it was segmented, it was controlled and reported locally that was managed up through a system that could be accessed centrally. There were documents that were manual that were not found in electronic files, for example, various charters and bylaws of entities throughout the world. We had some of our businesses that, frankly, weren't weren't updating the system, while some were. So what it left was a Frankenstein of a system that wasn't able to be managed and used effectively. Um, and what we started finding out even before COVID was that we, we needed to centralize that information and be able to have people, not just within legal, but within finance, controllership, tax as well, to be able to access that information and have accurate records in real time in order to make business decisions as well that affect the company um, with immediate bottom line results. 
So a couple years ago, we started a process of updating our legal entity management system to assign reviewers to each of our 900 legal entities throughout the world and to have on a quarterly basis the information regarding those entities updated centrally um, where we were able to actually hire one central person um, that, that, that was in charge of coordinating with the various corporate secretaries throughout the world. So we came into COVID in a very fortunate position where our files were up to date, where we did have electronic versions of all the documents, and where we had a constant review system that was electronic and that had already been implemented in the hearts and minds of our colleagues. Um, so it, it, we, were, we were in a very fortunate position, and it's, it's a non-perfect process, but it was something that um, was very timely because I think what people don't realize about legal entity management is that it's not just the compliance functions and the legal functions that need it. I think what a lot of companies realized during the COVID era is that liquidity is important, getting dividends up from subsidiaries, um, doing transactions in tax-efficient manners is all really important as well and affects the bottom line of the, the company immediately. And our finance colleagues needed to have information regarding our legal entity management system and the various entities in order to accomplish those transactions, in order to move up dividends, in order to move cash, in order for us to have adequate liquidity during a time of financial stress. So having that information, um, not manual, having, having it auto automated, having it all electronic has really helped our business um, manage these transactions during a COVID time in an efficient manner. And we, we get continually positive feedback from our finance departments and our business leaders that um, the, having that information correct and accurate and putting in the effort up front, not just being reactive, but being proactive and going out and doing a cleanse of the information and continually reviewing it to make sure it's accurate has really helped the bottom line of the, the company dur during this time of financial stress. Yeah, well, uh, speaking of stress, I mean... I I used to work many years ago. I used to work on an oil rig. I literally used to work on an oil rig, and and we kept on an even keel by drinking a lot. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's how you do it, but but like how how just for my benefit alone, at least, how do you how do you just stay steady? No, it's it's hard. You get thrown a lot of curveballs in this process. You get thrown. I get a lot of. 3 a.m. emails from different jurisdictions where I am obviously asleep, where the email comes in and says, urgent, need response for regulator in the morning. Um, it constantly keeps me on my toes, and I'll admit that I uh, sometimes stay up very late, and I oftentimes get up very early in, in, order to, um, in, in order to make sure I'm responding to the various requests that are coming throughout the world. Um, I'll say from a personal level, the way I handle it is um, an advice one of my law professors gave me a, a very long time ago was that we're, we're lawyers, we're not doctors, we're not saving life. Um, I, I think a lot of lawyers might, might disagree <laughs> agree with that, but the way I interpreted that was there, there's no problem we can't eventually fix. Um, and to when the information comes in, when it says urgent, just to take a deep breath and realize there is some workaround to this that we can somehow manage. And 
no one is going to die <laughs> because of an action or inaction that we didn't take. Um, at a more professional level, one of the ways we've, um, I try to keep my sanity is that we've actually created, and this is a practical piece of advice that has helped us, is instead of having random emails throughout the world come to me or to some of my colleagues where we might be asleep at different time zones, we've created just a centralized email box for global entity management and governance questions where we've encouraged our colleagues around the world to submit not just an email to me um, or other members of our corporate governance team, but to submit to that mailbox. And that mailbox goes to people in London. It goes to people in the UK. It's also managed by people in Australia who have access to it. So we like to think that by doing that, we literally have 24-hour coverage around the world where if someone has a question, someone will be up, someone will be available to access and respond to the information um, given the urgencies and the constant crises, crises that can develop um, around the world um, literally while we're sleeping overnight. So so that seems like a, a real simple simple fix. I don't know if people think about it, but that seems like a, a brilliant idea. And and the bottom line to answer the question is, how do you keep on an even keel? Well, I, I sleep, I guess is what you're saying. I get enough sleep. No, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, uh, <laughs> you, you, you said it better than I did, but um, I, I'll admit there was a point where I first started before we've implemented some of these new processes, before we really made the investment into technology, mm. where I, I was constantly frustrated. I was constantly, um, constantly stressed because I was unable to keep up, keep up with the, the, the influx and the, the questions that were coming around the world at all points of the day. And not to give another plug to investing in technology in the legal entity management system, but if we have a up-to-date, reliable one-fourth of the truth for a legal entity management system, and we give access, not edit rights, but access to that database to people around the world, they can self-empower and answer their own questions. Uh, they can log on. They can make. They can look at an entity, know the directors, know the legal entity structure, who the direct parent is. They can do that without coming to us at the middle of the night uh, for us to respond to these, what I would say, are low-hanging fruit questions because we've set up the infrastructure and the technology for them to access and self-help and get their own answers without necessarily burdening us um, or taking up our time for having to respond to them. Um, how do you how do you see the future moving uh, in terms of global entity management? I've mentioned it before, but I really think technology is the key in making early investments in technology. Mm. Um, th- that is where the future is moving. Um, it's it's moving to having virtual meetings, especially with COVID. It's moving to have that flexibility to be able to access charters and or, or docs virtually. It's having that up-to-date, real-time legal entity management system that anyone can access throughout the world. I, I would say that is, if it's not the future, it's, it's already here. And it may seem, I, I can see some people eye-rolling to that response and saying, well, great, you know, obviously, if we have millions of dollars, we can invest in technology in order to do this. Um, I, I don't think it is millions of dollars. It's, it's obviously some cost 
But um, as I said, it's the little things like the, the, the email mailbox or the just making sure you're doing a constant cleanse of data in your legal entity management system. It, it's putting in the effort up front that pays off dividends in the future. And as I said earlier, um, the legal entity management and governance has a direct effect on the bottom line. And you just need to be able to make that argument to your businesses that this is just not good governance isn't just a nice to have. It affects the bottom line of the company. Um, it affects how you're able to repatriate um, money. It affects how you're able to do complex uh, transnational transactions. Um, and so if you're able to make that case to your executives that, okay, if we invest X amount of money in terms of technology in order to implement these new processes or implement these new systems that it will pay off in the long run. It's not just money that's getting put in a hole somewhere. This actually affects the bottom line um, and, and, and helps shareholders generally. And that's your Governance Matters podcast. Our thanks to Connor Kuratek and Jared Simpson. Join us again next month when we'll take a deep dive into the latest shareholder proposal trends and get some expert predictions for what's in store for 2020. Until next time, I'm Taylor Hughes. And I'm Jeff Cassette. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. Bye.